Let us pray. Holy God, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed, that we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So as we start with our text today, we should keep in mind that we have the benefit of knowing more than David does. Now this seems like a little weird to say about something as venerated a figure as David in the Bible, but it is true. The narrator of this text gives us information that David doesn't necessarily know. For example, we see in chapter 30 that David and his men are coming back into Ziklag. They find out that the Amalekites had raided their home, and we know that it was the Amalekites, and that they have stolen all the things that mattered to them most, stolen and not killed, and burned the rest of the ground. So when we read in verse 4, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. We can have much more hope knowing that their loved ones haven't been killed, more so than David and his men. And so this knowledge might cause us to downplay what is going on in the verse. It can be difficult to relate to things that we haven't experienced it is hard, sitting here as we are, safe from bands of marauders, to fully embrace the complete emotional breakdown that is occurring here in this verse. The pain, the intensity of their sorrow is so severe that the people who were with David even thought of stoning him because they were so bitter in soul. This is striking. Not only is it striking in realizing their sorrow, it is striking because David, ever since 1 Samuel 16, has been the Lord's anointed king of Israel. You would expect that things would have turned out quite differently by now. But as we have found, David has been pursued by Saul and the rest of the Israelite army, except for some instances when David served alongside Saul and even played the liar to soothe him, there has been this dramatic tension building between Saul and David. So far, David is king over a liar, some clothing of Jonathan's, an ephod, and 600 men. So yes, this verse 4 is a very telling verse. We know David as this major biblical figure. We know that he has a heart that is after the Lord. David has been a rock. He's been stalwart in his faith and in his wisdom and leadership. It has been excellent. So now, seeing David weeping until he has no more strength reminds me of when I first saw my dad cry. My dad was a rock, not prone to weeping, however good or bad that, that may be. But seeing our pillars, the ones who always know what to do and what to say, being so devastated can shake us. If these stalwarts of faith and endurance can crumble, cry, and weep, what about us? We have to recap briefly chapter 27, 28, and then we're going to look at chapter 29 to understand this despair of David's. Last week in his sermon, Tim talked about how David looked inwardly. He looked into his heart at the beginning of chapter 27. 
David is using his own reasoning. He is, in effect, turning to himself and not to God. In chapter 27, David had fled to the Philistines, the enemy lands of his nation. This in itself seems absurd on one hand, and on the other hand, it seems he had every reason to do so. After all, Saul was after him, the Israelite army was after him, and David's attempts to reconcile with Saul had failed. David's reasoning seems to be confirmed because when David went to Gath, Saul no longer sought him. But David, he is still the anointed of the Lord. He is still the chosen king of Israel. Even when his reasoning led him to flee to the Philistines, David still had his followers. And they looked to him to see what to do. David must have been thinking to himself, what plan can I come up with now? What shall I do now that Saul is not pursuing me? David begins to formulate a plan. He begins to pull the wool over the eyes of Achish, the king of Gath. So much that Achish, in the beginning of chapter 28, thought that David was going to battle with him against Israel. When given this order, David replies, very well, you will see what your servant can do. And we also have to keep in mind that the text does not capture the tone or inflection of the reader. Much can depend on emphasis of voice. David could have meant, very well, you will see what your servant can do against your enemies. Or David could have said, oh yeah, yeah, you're definitely going to see what your servant can do. The way the narration of the text unfolds lends to our understanding of this conversation is leaning towards the latter end. That is, towards David's statement as being more of a veiled threat. I think we can know this by the way chapter 29 unfolds. Chapter 29 has David marching with the enemy army, the army of the Philistines. I am quite sure that David's plan all along was to deceive Achish and the rest of the Philistines enough so that at the proper moment, at the pinnacle of battle, David would be unleashed and attack the Philistines from the rear. And in so doing, David would catch them by surprise and probably utterly defeat them. David's reasoning, his conniving, his planning, when viewed in such a way, sounds like a pretty good idea. Lure the enemy into being relaxed around you, manipulate them into lowering their guard, and when the time is just right and your deceptions have worked, strike hard and strike fast. But the other commanders recognize David. Commanders, realizing that they would essentially enter into battle with the enemy at their backs, turn to Achish and ask, what are these Hebrews doing here? If they were questioning the integrity and intelligence of Achish, thinking him to be a fool, well, Achish proved it to them when he said, is this not David, servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. It seems part of David's deception has worked. Chapter 29, verses 4 and 5, has a narrator exposing the plot of David. The commanders were angry with Achish, and I can just picture the looks on their faces as they listened to him. Surely they were just dumbfounded when they said to Achish, send the man back. 
that he may return to the place in which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? The commanders of the Philistines have a good reason to be highly suspicious of David and his band of Hebrews. They probably remember the event that is described to us in 1 Samuel 14, where in that battle, the Hebrews that were with the Philistine army, probably conscripts, deserted and returned to Saul's army. Not to mention the sound whooping that a young David delivered to their wonder warrior, Goliath. And so what we have here is the plot of David read to us, uncovered by the Philistines, and David has failed yet again. So after a rather strange exchange, Achish dismisses David to return to Ziklag. And now this return is something like 60 miles. It takes almost three days. And I'm sure during this long transition, David had plenty of time to consider all of these events. And we are now with David as he is weeping until he has no more strength. Some of us can surely have sympathy for what David must be thinking. For all of his bravado, his daring, for all the accolades from his friends and from Samuel, David is sitting far from home in a burned-out rubble beset on all sides by the enemy. It is worth noting that David has not heard from the Lord in some time. To be more precise, David has not sought after the Lord in some time. In 1 Samuel, the last time we read where David inquired of the Lord and the Lord responded, it's way back in chapter 23. Yet all the while, we the readers have seen God's will at work. Yes, David is in despair, sitting in sorrow with his men ready to stone him, but God has been working. What David doesn't know and what he didn't factor into his plans is what we all read about in chapter 28. This is where the ghostly Samuel delivered the prophecy to Saul that the Israelite army was going to be defeated by the Philistines and that Saul and his sons would be killed in the very battle that David was going to be part of. This brings us to a very important lesson in the text. This is our first point. God's will be done. The works of humanity, the reasoning of humanity, even the reasoning of a biblical giant such as David, alter God's sovereignty not one little bit. Likewise, the failings and shortcomings of humanity, even biblical giants like David, matter not to God's sovereignty. The tail does not wag the dog. The dog wags the tail. In all aspects of human reasoning, technology, cultural triumphs, scientific breakthroughs, medical innovations, God's will is what prevails over all of it. If anything, it is our own failure of understanding God's will in our lives that brings us fear and uncertainty. David has not been seeking the Lord. He has been planning and plotting on his own. And we see at the start of chapter 30 that, he is, that this has led David and his men to despair. But in verse 8, we find another lesson, our second point in this text. And that is, God is always there 
he is always faithful. Verse 8 reads, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. This is a pivotal moment in the chapter. David went from weeping and being distraught to his very core and turning to God. And God is right there, as he has always been. Once David asks the Lord, there is no pause in the text. There is no sentence explaining what David's men thought of all this. The next sentence is God's response. He's right there. David just needed to turn to him. So in the following verses, we find a renewed David. He is on a mission, and he is energized, and so too are his men. There is no more talk of stoning David. The men take up after the Amalekite army. The text very clearly goes from a tone of despair to one of action, immediacy. The will of David is aligned with the will of God, and so David cannot be defeated. Even though the Negev is a desert region, and even though it is extremely difficult to find an opposing army, to position your army in a way that brings to bear the full might that you have, David has relied on God, and God provides the way as he always has. Notably, we see this provision in verses 11 through 15. David and his men come across an Egyptian in the open country. David and his men treat this Egyptian man well. They show him hospitality and kindness, even though the Egyptians are viewed with contempt. David's kindness and grace is appreciated by the Egyptian, and he tells him how he became lost in the open country. As it turns out, he knows exactly what David and his men need to know. He confirms that he was with some Amalekites who had left him behind when he became sick. But before that, he was with them when they made raids, and especially when they sacked Ziklag. The Egyptian points them to where the Amalekites are. And things are finally coming up roses for David and his men. In the ensuing battle, David is more than victorious. Not only do they rescue the captives alive, but they capture all they had lost and then some. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. We're coming to our, our third lesson, our third point in the text. That is that the blessings of God that God gives to you is expected to be shared with others. In verse 21, we are reminded of something that I skipped over earlier. In chapter 30, verses 9 and 10, we find that 200 men were not able to cross over the brook Bessor and continue the pursuit of the Amalekites. They were described as being too exhausted, which is understandable considering that David and his men had just completed a march of 60 miles back to Ziklag. But now here, in verse 21, David has come back to the 200 men. These men had been too exhausted to follow David, and they'd been left behind. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, 
we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. The text gives us no room to doubt or wonder. These men are wicked and worthless. These are men that want to keep their spoil, what they previously called David's spoil. Our understanding of just how wicked and worthless they are is helped when we compare the treatment of the Egyptian servant to the treatment of their fellow countrymen, the 200 men who were too exhausted to cross the river. Now these 200 men are men who they fought alongside in many raids and battles, men who surely might have been considered friends at one time. So I wonder of these wicked and worthless men, where is a hospitality for their fellow countrymen? Where is a hospitality they showed to the Egyptian stranger? David's response is golden. David recognizes that all along the will of God has been at work. That these spoils, ones that they called David at first, really belong to God. And it's here in this last point that I think we here at Christ the King really explore. The question we have to ask is, what are the blessings that we are talking about here in this text? And how does it apply to us today? The topic for these verses, 23 through 25, is clearly about what David and his men have gotten from the Amalekites. These would include the return of family, possessions they already had, as well as possessions they have newly acquired. There is a sense of this material wealth that seems to be the subject of the dispute. The Israelite nation has historically found that hospitality is extremely important. We see this in how they treated the Egyptian. We also see this both in Numbers 31:27 and Joshua 22:8. This ex expectation of taking material wealth and spreading it among the soldiers as well as among the rest of the community. So David knows this, and he reminds them of these wicked and worthless people. He reminds them of this expectation. He does it to the degree that it is a statute. And he follows up in verses 26 through 31 by sharing with others in Judah. But this is only one aspect of what our text is telling us. I know that in my life I will give thanks to God for my blessings, the things and people who God has given to me, put in my path, allowed me to know. And so I regularly thank God for my family. I thank him for my friends my church, all the people there. I'm thankful for money, for which pays my bills, that I have a roof over my head. I'm grateful for these things, and I can certainly appreciate and learn from the basic message that our text has for us, to share and share alike, to be generous. There is more to this, however, than just blessings of material wealth. I said earlier that we know more than David does. Now I want to amend that statement and say that God has revealed more to his creation and that he has given us his only son, Jesus Christ. Let us consider a few verses from the New Testament. And we'll start with John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 Peter 3.18 says that only Jesus was righteous, that he suffered for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And Galatians 2.20 says that if we trust in Jesus and through Jesus, our sins are also crucified with him and we will have eternal life. That is truly a blessing, a spectacular gift. We know that the blessings, the spoils, if you were, are found with Jesus Christ. That Jesus took the punishment for all of our sins, not just looking at things on the internet, not just craving money or alcohol or power. Jesus took the punishment that we decisively deserve for all of our sins. Our God-given belief, our God-given trust in Jesus means that our debt is paid in full, and we now have eternal citizenship in heaven. That is what matters in this life. That is what the spoil truly is, and it is a gift that leads us to clothe ourselves in what Paul describes as compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So we have to take this freedom, this blessing that we are given through Jesus Christ, out the door and into the world where the serpent lies in wait. We must take this blessing to those who are not only in our own neighborhood, but also into the neighborhood we are planning to move our church. For those who are visiting or who do not know, Christ the King has been in the process of acquiring a building for our church. So when we get there, just as anywhere, we will encounter people who are faithful looking for a church, we will also encounter people who are mad at us for parking on their streets, for causing more congestion of traffic on Sunday morning. And we will definitely encounter people who are lost and broken because they are looking for answers from within. We can take confidence that from the fact that it is God's will that it is done, and not that of human politics or systems or desires. We can take joy in knowing that in our darkest moments when we feel that all is lost, God is right there, close to us. So let us both individually and as a church not echo the words of those who are labeled as wicked and worthless, but rather be like David, who not only pointed out that we should remember our hospitality by being generous, but also to remember that the true blessing comes from God and is not meant to be owned, covered, or kept at a selfish desire, but rather to be shared and to trust that God's will be done. Let us pray. Grant to us, Almighty God, that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may be grafted to our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that your words may bring forth in us the fruit of goodness and grace to the honor and praise of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.